We're going to be learning in Chidusha Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi, the fourth and final piece in Elchus Malva Velova. This is Parak Chaf Aleph, Halacha Aleph. And this is a long and complicated piece where, again, as Rabbi Chaim has been doing in the pieces in this section of Malva Velova, he's going to examine an intricate issue in a case where there's a lender and a borrower and a purchaser and the nature of how the lien works. So the exact details of this case are that someone bought property from the borrower and then they improved the property. So the question is, what rights does the original lender have to collect from the improved value of this leaned property, which were brought about by the buyer who doesn't own the lender anything? So Rab Chaim's going to explore that. And in the course of it, he gets into what the nature of a lien is versus ownership, as well as what the nature of improved are compared to the original field itself. So Rab Chaim's discussing a lot of very key conceptual issues in the course of explaining this very detailed and convoluted case regarding liens. The Rambam writes, If someone buys a field from a borrower, so there was a lien against the field, and then they add improvements called shevach to that field. So the lender can come collect the entire field, including the shevach as well. Whether it was automatic, organic improvement. So the field on its own added the value. So the buyer did not do it. Or even if the buyer himself invested and added the shevach, either way the lender is able to collect the shevach. But there is a difference. If the value was added on its own, so then the lender collects the entire shevach. But if the buyer added the value, so then the lender only collects half the shevach. So that's the distinction between automatic shevach versus active shevach. Now, later in Halacha Gimel and Dalid, the Rambam gives two exceptions. If the borrower gives someone a gift, so this was not a sale, it was gifted to them, and then they improve the gift, so then the lender cannot collect any of it. But if the gift improves on its own, so then the lender can collect the whole thing. So basically a gift is different from a sale only in the active shevach, that if the person who got the gift improved the value, then the lender cannot collect it. But in terms of the automatic shevach that happens on its own, so then a gift and a sale are the same, that the borrower can collect all of the shevach. The second exception is v'chein yisomim, orphans who inherit a property, if they add value to the inheritance, so then the lender of the person who died cannot collect any of the shevach. But if the inheritance improved on its own, so automatic shevach, then the lender could collect. So again, when it comes to heirs, it's the same thing as a gift. If they add value, then the lender does not collect that shevach. But if it happens automatically, then he collects the shevach. So that is the framework for the Rambam's halacha. When it comes to a sale, there's a difference between automatic shevach, where the lender collects 100%, as opposed to the buyer adding shevach, where the lender only collects half. 
And that's different than a gift or an inheritance where automatic shevach works the same. But if the person who got the gift or the heirs add the shevach themselves, so then the lender cannot collect anything. Now, the Ravid writes about the two exceptions that it's a das yachid. It's a minority opinion. It's not the majority opinion. So according to the Ravid, there is a debate and the majority disagrees with the Rambam about these two exceptions. Now, the Magid Mishnah quotes that there is another debate with the Rambam. This is on a more fundamental issue. The Rashba writes that the Geonim do not agree with the Rambam that in the case of a sale, that the lender can collect fully the shevach if it's automatic. So they disagree on that detail and they hold that whether it's automatic or if the buyer improved it, in either case, the lender only collects half the shevach. So that's the view of the geonim, unlike the rambam, who holds that when it's automatic shevach in a sale, then the lender collects the whole thing. So those are the three debates between the Rambam and the other commentators. Now, Rab Chaim explains the context for this whole discussion is the Gemara in Bamitzia Daf Tesvav. Shmuel says, Balchov Goves HaShavach, that a lender collects not only the field itself, but also any improvements that the buyer did. So Rava brings a proof to this because in the deed of sale, the seller writes to the buyer that if the field is collected by a lender because of a lien, so he's going to compensate him. Not only the field itself, but any work and any improvements that he added to the field. So we see that the lender would collect the shevach and then the seller will compensate the buyer. So that's the proof for Shmuel's halacha. Now the Gemara quotes that Rabbi Chiyabar Oven asked Rava, according to your proof, so what about in the case of a gift? The person giving the gift does not write to the beneficiary that he will compensate him for any shevach that he loses. So according to Rava, maybe the lender should not be able to collect the shevach in the case of a gift. So Amalei Rava, in, in fact, that is the case. In the case of a gift, the lender does not collect the shevach only when it comes to a sale. So Rab Chaim says that we see from this whole discussion that inherently the fundamental halacha is that the lender does not collect the shevach that came about in the ownership of the buyer. Because that's new value that was added after it already left the ownership of the borrower. The only thing the lender can collect is the stuff that belonged to the borrower. But stuff that added after it left the borrower's ownership and went to the buyer, that he really should not collect. If not for the fact that it's written into the deed of sale, there's a stipulation that the lender can collect the shevach. So the buyer agrees to that stipulation that he's going to give him the shevach. And that's why a gift and an inheritance is different because since the person getting the gift and the heirs never agreed to that stipulation, Stipulation, so the lender has no rights to the value that's added in their ownership. So that's why when it comes to a gift or an inheritance, the lender is not able to collect the shevach at all.
So now this explains the debate between the Rambam and the other commentators. The Rambam holds that this whole point only applies to Shevach, that the person who bought it or the person who got the gift or the heirs add themselves. But automatic Shevach is not included in this whole concept because it came about automatically from the field. So the lender has a right to it, not only because it was written into the deed of sale, but he has a fundamental right to collect from that automatic Shevach. So that's why even in the case of a gift and even an inheritance, the Rambam says that the lender can still collect from the Shevach, even though it came about after it left the borrower's ownership. But since that Shevach came about through the field, so the lender has a right to collect from it. And that's also why he collects 100% of it, because since he's collecting based on the actual halacha, not just the stipulation, so he's able to collect the entire Shevach. The other view disagrees with the Rambam. They hold that even the automatic shevach functions the same as the active shevach that the buyer added. So both types of shevach, the lender has no right to collect from it. The only reason he's able to collect is because of the stipulation in the deed of sale. So that's why they hold that it's limited only to a sale. But when it comes to a gift or an inheritance, so even the automatic shevach the lender has no right to collect from. And that's also why they hold that he only collects half from the automatic shevach because he has no real right to it. So that explains the two perspectives of the Rambam and the other commentators. Now, the Gemurin Babasra Kufnun Zayin has a case of lava the lava. If a person borrows from two different lenders, the Acharkach Kona Umachar, and then he buys a field and then sells it. So now both lenders have a lien on this field. So the Gemara rules Shnehem Cholkin that they divide the Shevach between the two lenders. Now, likewise, the Gemara rules that the buyer and the lender also divide the Shevach because the buyer is also like a lender because since the seller sold the property with a warranty, so the buyer is going to collect this money back from the seller. So he also is like a collector, just like the lenders. So the case where the borrower sells a field to the buyer who then improves it and then a lender comes to collect that field is equal to two lenders. It's the equivalent of someone who borrowed from two lenders. So just like they split the Shevach in that case, so in this case also of a regular buyer and a lender, they split the Shevach. So that's where we get the concept that the lender collects half the Shevach. Now the Rambam interprets that that's only referring to Shevach that the buyer actively improved, not automatic Shevach where the lender collects the whole thing. And the reason is because the Gemara explains the way this works is that it says if the buyer sells the Shevach, back to the seller, who's the borrower, and then the lender collects it because now it's included in the borrower's ownership. So that only applies to the shevach that was not included in the lien to begin with, meaning the shevach that the buyer actively improved. So since that was not included in the lien, it's only included in the lien because of the stipulation that the buyer agreed to sell it back to the seller, to the borrower. So that type of shevach 
has this halacha that the buyer is also like the lender. He has the equal status. So that's why the buyer and the lender split the shevach. But when it's automatic shevach, so that is fundamentally included in the lien, not because of the deed of sales wording, but because that's included in the property which was leaned. So there the borrower does not need to buy back the shevach in order for the lender to collect it. The lender can automatically collect it. So the buyer is not an equal status lender, so they don't have to split it. The lender just collects the whole thing. So that explains how the Rambam got to his position. Now, those who disagree with the Rambam, the other perspective, they hold that both types of shevach are considered the buyers. So even automatic shevach is not fundamentally included in the lien. It has to go through the same process where the buyer sells it back to the borrower and then the lender can collect it. So since both types of shevach, including automatic shevach, are included in that process, so now the buyer has an equal status. He's also a lender. So he and the lender split the shevach and they both get half. So that's why they interpret that the Gemara that says that the lender only gets half the shevach is talking about all types of shevach, even automatic shevach. And even there, the buyer gets half of the shevach because he's like the lender. So that explains the debate over this issue, whether automatic shevach the lender collects fully or only half. And that also connects with whether in a gift or an inheritance, the lender is able to collect anything from the automatic shabach. But now Rab Chaim asks, how do we understand the view of the Rambam? How could it be that automatic shevach is fundamentally included in the lien when that shevach, that value only came about in the ownership of the buyer? So it never belonged to the borrower to begin with. So how could it possibly be that the lender has a right to collect that added value which never belonged to the person who borrowed from him and it belongs to a totally random stranger who bought this field. According to the other view, this makes sense because it's all included in the stipulation of the sale. But according to the Rambam, the automatic shevach is fundamentally included in the lien, even without the stipulation. So Rab Chaim's asking, how does that work? Now, one suggestion for the Rambam might be that he holds since the lender has a lien on this property, so any improvement that comes about even after the borrower sells it is as if it was done in the ownership of the lender. So even though the borrower no longer owns it, but it's as if the lender owns it, so that's why he fundamentally can collect even improvements that happen in the buyer's ownership. Says Rab Chaim, that's not going to work though, because why should that be limited only to automatic shevach? That should include, even if the buyer himself improves the property, any added value that the buyer brings to it should also be fundamentally included in the lien. Not only in the sale agreement, but even in the lien itself, because that's the halacha, that if someone actively improves someone else's field, it belongs to the owner. The Gemara Bametziah Kuf Aleph says, that someone who goes into his friend's field with permission and plants it and harvests it, so they work in the field and they bring out value, so their percentage is like a sharecropper. So they're treated like a 
sharecropper. They get a percentage for the work they did, but fundamentally the produce belongs to the owner. So we see that working someone else's field, the shevach, the improvements belong to the owner. So the same should apply in this case if we're going to say, according to the Rambam, that the field fundamentally belongs to the lender because of the lien. So any improvements, even that the buyer actively does, should belong to the lender on a fundamental level, not only because of the agreement sale. So that would mean that the buyer gets a percentage like a sharecropper, but basically everything else belongs to the lender. But that cannot be because the Rambam explicitly rules that when it comes to a gift or an inheritance, then the lender cannot collect the active improvements. Now, why should that be? If the active shevach is included in the lien, so then the lender should be able to collect even in the case of a gift or an inheritance because that is all part of the lien. So obviously this approach is not going to work to explain that the basis of this halacha is because of the lien, any improvements automatically belong to the lender. So instead, says Rab Chaim, in fact, there is a difference between a lien and actually owning the property. The only time that we say that the shevach automatically belongs to the owner is when he actually owns the property. But a lien is not ownership of the property. It's just a lien that the person could collect the property. So in order to get back the value of the loan, they're going to take this property. That's what a lien means. But they don't actually own it at this point in time. So the improvements to the property do not automatically belong to the lender, but instead they belong to the buyer or to the person that got the gift or to the heirs, whoever did the improvements, they belong to them. So if so, why does the Rambam then hold that automatic shevach, the lender could collect, even though it was done in the ownership of the buyer after it left the ownership of the borrower, and the lender also did not own it at that time. So how's he collecting it? So Rab Chaim explains a very fundamental concept, that a lien is not towards a person, it's on the property itself. So the lender does not have a lien against the borrower. He has a lien on this field itself. So whatever happens to that field after the lien is all included in the lien, even if it no longer belongs to the borrower at some point. So even though the borrower sells the field and now someone else owns it, but the lien remains on that field, even though it belongs to someone new. So that explains why a lien persists after the borrower dies as well. Even though the borrower is no longer here, but the lien remains on this field. So that explains why the automatic shevach is part of the lien, even though it was done under the ownership of the buyer. Because since the value was added by the field itself, and the field is leaned, so that lien persists even though the buyer now has ownership of it. So any value that's added by the field under lien itself is all included in the overall lien and the lender has a fundamental claim to be able to collect not only the field but all the improvements and it doesn't matter that they were done under the ownership of someone other than the borrower. So that's how to understand the conceptual basis of this halacha that even though someone else bought the field and that's when the improvements happened, it doesn't matter because the lien persists on the field even after it's sold and it includes any improvements that the field itself creates. Now, why doesn't this logic include active shevach as well? So Rab Chaim answers based on the Yushalmi and the
the first chapter of Maisros, Hazorea Sada Hefker Maisros. If someone plants in an ownerless field, so they have to give Maiser from that produce, and the Rambam in Elchus Trumos Beis Yud Aleph also records that halacha. So we see that there is a difference between planting in someone else's field versus planting in an ownerless field. Even though if someone plants in someone else's field, so the produce belongs to the owner and the planter only gets a percentage like a sharecropper. But we see from this halacha that in an ownerless hefker field, it works differently. That the person who planted it fully owns it because otherwise they wouldn't be able to take miser off the produce. It would be produce that's mixed in with hefker as well as owned produce all mixed together and you can't take miser off of that. So the fact that he can take miser obviously shows us that the person who planted it fully owns it and it's not considered hefker at all. So planting in an ownerless field, the produce does not follow the status of the field at all. So this distinction is going to explain why the active shevach that the buyer invests in the field is not included in the lien. Because we only say that shevach a person puts in a field belongs to the owner when the owner owns the field. But in the case of the lien, as Rab Chaim said, a lien is not actual ownership. It's a right to collect this property, but the lender does not actually own the property right now. So it's parallel to the case of Hefker, an ownerless field. So just like the improvements of Hefker belong to the person who did them, so likewise, the improvements on a lien belong to the person who did them. And the person doesn't even need to own the land in order to own the Shevach. Just like in the case of Hefker, the person who plants doesn't own the land, but they still own the produce. So likewise, the buyer who adds to the land owns the Shevach because they would own it even if they didn't own the land. So certainly in this case where they own the land, it belongs to them because the lender only has a lien but does not own this land. So that explains why the Rambam rules that the active Shevach of the buyer is not included in the lien and the lender has no fundamental right to collect that. As opposed to the automatic Shevach, which happens even without the buyer's investment, it happens from the land itself. So since the land produced that Shevach, so that is included in the lien because again, the lien is on the land and not on the person. So even though the buyer bought this land, whatever Shevach the land itself produces is part of the lien and the lender has the fundamental right to collect that Shevach. So that explains the Rambam's distinction between active versus automatic Shevach. Now in the third paragraph, Rab Chaim uses this same basic approach to explain another Rambam. In Hilchus the Rambam rules, If someone buys a field that was the family property of the seller, so that field has to go back in the 50th Yovel year, but in the meantime, he plants trees and he improves the field. 
So when he returns the field at Yovel, we evaluate how much the Shevach is worth. And the owner, meaning the guy who's getting back the field, the seller, has to pay the buyer the value of the Shevach. The Torah says that the sale has to be returned. So only the sale, the value of the object as it was sold is returned, but not the Shevach. So the Rambam rules that when a field is returned at Yovel, the seller has to return the Shevach money to the buyer who used it until Yovel, based on the Gemara in But in the language of the Rambam, it's clear that he only gets paid for the Shevach that he actively improved, not the automatic Shevach. So the seller only pays for the Shevach that the buyer himself accomplished, but the automatic Shevach he gets back and does not need to pay for. So why should that be? It should all be included in the Torah, which said that he gets back what he sold, but not the added Shevach. So what does it matter if it's automatic or active? So Rab Chaim explains based on a very similar approach to the one he just developed, that the Rambam holds that automatic Shevach is included in the field itself. It's not like a separate item over and above the field. It's part of the very field. So when the Torah said that the seller gets back his sale, he gets back the field that he sold, that includes any automatic Shevach which is part of the field, as opposed to the active Shevach that the buyer added to this field. So that belongs to the buyer because it's separate from the field. Even if the buyer didn't actually own this field and he improved it, he would still own the improvements. So the Shevach belongs to the buyer. And if the seller gets it back at Yovel, then he has to pay for it. And it's not included in what the Torah said that he gets back the field that he sold. And don't say that really the seller owned this field the whole time because he has the fundamental rights to the field. It's his family's property that he's going to get back at Yovel. It's just a temporary sale. So any improvements that the buyer put into the land should belong to the seller because it's like someone improving the owner's land. Says Rab Chaim, that does not apply in this case because in the meantime, the seller did not own the land. He actually sold it, even though it's temporary and it's going to come back to him at Yovel, but in the meantime, the buyer does own the land. So the improvements do not belong to the seller. So the only way the seller could get the improvements for free is only if it's included in the field itself, which the Torah said has to be returned to him at Yovel. But that only includes the automatic Shevach, which is part of the field. So that's why the seller gets that back at Yovel for free. But the active Shevach that the buyer added to the field. So that's not part of the field. That belongs to the buyer. And the only way for the seller to get it back at Yovel is to pay the buyer the value of the Shevach. But the Shevach itself is not automatically included in the field that's returned. So this is parallel to Rab Chaim's explanation in the Rambam in the case of the lien that he's been saying throughout this piece that the Rambam holds that automatic Shevach is 
included in the lien itself and the lender has a right to collect it. As opposed to active shevach of the buyer, which is separate from the actual land, so it's not included in the lien. It belongs to the buyer, so it's separate from the actual land itself and it's not part of the lien. So it's the same thing when it comes to Yovel. In both cases, the Rambam holds that active shevach is separate from the land, so it belongs to the buyer and it's not included in the Yovel return or in the lien. Whereas automatic shevach, which comes from the land itself, so it does not belong to the buyer, he did not add those improvements. So that type of shevach is part of the land and it's included in the Yovel return and in the lien. So the case of Yovel is a very nice parallel to the whole discussion of the lien. So now in the fourth paragraph, Rab Chaim asks a question on this distinction that the Rambam keeps making. The Mishnah in Bamitzia Kuftes says, If someone gets a field from their friend, like a sharecropper, to work for a few years, he does not have the right to cut down the trees and make them into beams because he only got those trees for a short time and it's going to take longer for them to grow back if he cuts them down. So he does not have the right to cut them down. Now the Gemara quotes a debate between Abaya and Rava. Abaya says, Bekoros shikma lo shikma yeshlo. Abaya limits the rule of this Mishnah that the sharecropper only doesn't have the right to cut down the trees. But the shevach of the trees, the improvement of the trees while they're standing, does belong to the sharecropper. Rava says that when the Mishnah says he doesn't own the beams of the trees, it means that he also does not get the shevach of the trees. So there's a debate between Abaya and Rava in this case, whether the sharecropper owns the shevach of the trees. So the Gemara asks on Rava from this brysa of Yovel, shevach shikma eno choser Yovel. the buyer does not return the shevach at Yovel, so that seems to indicate that the buyer owns the shevach, unlike Rava who says that the shevach of the trees belongs to the owner of the field, not the sharecropper. So the Gemara answers, Shiny Hosim Damar Krah, Mimkar Choser, Shavach Eno Choser. Yovel is an exception because the Torah explicitly said that the Shavach is not returned, only the original sale is returned. So even though Rava ordinarily holds that the buyer does not own the Shavach, in the case of Yovel, the Torah made an exception based on the language of how it describes Yovel. So the Gemara asks, Vinigmar Minei, why don't we derive other sales from the precedent of Yovel and learn out from Yovel that the Shevach belongs to the buyer. So the Gemara answers, In the case of Yovel, the buyer fully owns the field, just the Torah made a rule that they need to return it at Yovel. But there's nothing lacking in their purchase of the field. So that's why they own the Shevach, even though the Torah says that they have to give it back at Yovel, but that does not include the Shevach. As opposed to in Rava's case of a sharecropper for a short time period, so they don't have a real ownership of this field, so that's why they don't own the Shevach. And we're not going to compare that case to the case of Yovel with a real sale. Now, the Rambam in the eighth chapter of Hilchus limits Rava's view that the sharecropper does not own the Shevach only to automatic Shevach. But the active Shevach that the sharecropper himself 
puts into the trees, that does belong to him. So the Rambam applies his normal distinction between active versus automatic shavach to this case as well. And the sharecropper only does not own the automatic shavach, but he does own the active shavach. So now Rab Chaim asks, how can the Rambam fit into the Gemara? Because according to the Rambam, there is no contradiction between the case of Yovel and the Halacha of Rava. Because even in Yovel, the buyer does not return the active Shevach, but he does return the automatic Shevach. That's what the Rambam said. So the same is true in Rava's Halacha. The sharecropper owns the active Shevach. He just doesn't own the automatic Shevach. So according to the Rambam, there is no contradiction from the case of Yovel to Rava, in both cases, the buyer owns the active Shevach. Rava's just saying that the sharecropper doesn't own the automatic Shevach, and that's the same parallel with Yovel. So what is the Gemara asking a contradiction from the Brisa to Rava? So to answer this, Rab Chaim explains that when the Gemara says, V'nigmar minei, let's learn out regular sales from the case of Yovel. Now, even though Yovel is a different situation, because the Torah explicitly said, that the Shevach does not get returned at Yovel. So how can we compare that to a regular sale where the Torah never explicitly excluded the Shevach? So Rab Chaim explains, because at Yovel, the field gets returned. So anything that's included in the field has to be returned. The fact that Shevach is not returned teaches us that it's not included as part of the field. So that's what the Gemara is saying, even though there's a special Pasuk when it comes to Yovel, that the Bible keeps the Shevach, but that also teaches us the detail that the Shevach is not included as part of the field itself. So in any sale, when the buyer returns the field, he should be able to keep the Shevach. So it's almost like there's two components to the returning at Yovel. One is the halacha that the sale goes back to the owner. So that the Torah gives us the details of what's included in that, and it explicitly excluded the Shevach. But that we're not going to compare to regular transactions because that's a special halacha of Yovel, not for other sales. But then there's a second component, which is that at Yovel, the buyer has to return the field and anything that's included in the field. Now, there we also see that the shevach is not included in that return. So that we can extrapolate to other sales that the definition of returning a field does not include shevach. So the same should be true of a sharecropper that when he returns the field, he keeps the shevach because it's not included in the field that has to be returned. So now applying this formulation, Rab Chaim explains what the Gemara's question was to begin with. Again, there doesn't seem to be a real contradiction between Yovel and the case of the sharecropper because in both of them, the buyer owns the active shevach that he puts in. So what's the Gemara asking a contradiction? So Rab Chaim explains, based on this formulation, that only when it comes to Yovel does it make sense to differentiate between active shevach versus automatic shevach. That the automatic shevach is part of the field, so it gets returned at Yovel, and the active shevach belongs to the buyer, so it's not returned. That all makes sense in the case of Yovel. But in the case of the sharecropper, there's no reason to differentiate between active shevach versus automatic shevach because the sharecropper never really owns this field. He's just working it. It always belongs to the owner. So that's a big difference between the buyer of Yovel who actually does own it. He just has to return it at Yovel. So the active shevach that he improves should belong to him. 
That makes sense. But the sharecropper doesn't own the field. He's improving someone else's field. So when someone works another person's field, even the active shevach belongs to the owner. They get a percentage like a sharecropper, but all the shevach, whether it's automatic or even if it's active, belongs to the owner. So in the case of the sharecropper, because he doesn't own the land at all, it doesn't make sense to differentiate between automatic versus active shevach. So that's why the Gemara asks from the Brisa of Yovel on the case of Rava. Once we see when it comes to Yovel that the buyer owns the shevach, now even though that's only the active shevach, not the automatic shevach, but we see from Yovel that there is shevach that the buyer owns. Once we see that and apply it to the sharecropper, it should mean that he owns all the shevach, even the automatic shevach, because again, there's no reason to differentiate. So once we see that he owns the active shevach, the sharecropper should also own the passive automatic shevach, because obviously we're not applying the rule that since someone else owned the land, all the shevach belongs to the owner. We're saying that the buyer, the sharecropper, is the one who owns the shevach. So that applies not only to the active shevach, but also to the automatic shevach. So that's the contradiction with Rava. So that's the question of the Gemara, that even though we could make this distinction between automatic and active shevach when it comes to Yovel, we cannot make it for the sharecropper. So if the shevach belongs to the buyer, it should all belong to the sharecropper. So on that, the Gemara answers that Yovel works totally differently. The buyer fully owns the field up until Yovel, and the Torah commands that he has to return it at Yovel. But up until then, he fully owns it. So all the Shevach actually belongs to him. Not only the active Shevach, but even the automatic Shevach, everything really belongs to the buyer. So why does he have to return the automatic Shevach? That's because of the other component. It's not because the automatic Shevach is included in the field at all. It's because the Torah said that the mimkar, the sale has to be returned and that criteria includes the automatic shevach in the field which was sold. It does not include the active shevach. So that's why the buyer gets to keep the active shevach because it's fully his and the Torah never commanded him to return it. But the way the Torah describes what needs to be returned at Yovel does include the automatic shevach, not the active. Active shevach. So that's the component that forces the return of the automatic shevach. It's not that the automatic shevach is included in the field itself. So now we can't compare that at all to the case of the sharecropper. When it comes to the sharecropper, it works totally differently because he does not own the field himself. So when it comes to the sharecropper, we apply the distinction that the automatic shevach is the owner's because it came about under the ownership of the owner. But the active shevach, which the sharecropper put into the field, he owns that because it didn't come from the field itself. So the criteria for defining which shevach belongs to the sharecropper is totally different from the criteria of what's included in the field of Yovel because there's a special detail of the halacha of Yovel as opposed to the sharecropper where we apply this distinction that the automatic shevach is included in the field whereas the active shevach belongs to the buyer. So even though practically the two halachas end up in the same place but they get there in different ways. So that's how Rabbi Chaim 
Chaim explains the back and forth in this Gemara, and that explains how the Rambam maintains his distinction between automatic and active Shevach, and how he's able to fit that into the back and forth in the Gemara. And from this whole analysis, we again see Rab Chaim's overall point that the Rambam holds that automatic Shevach is part of the field itself. It's included in the definition of what's a part of this field, as opposed to active shevach, which belongs to the buyer, the person who put it into the field. It's not part of the field itself. It belongs to whoever did it. So that distinction of the Rambam, he also applies to the case of the lender. That's why fundamentally the lender can only collect from the automatic shevach. That's all included in the lien, as opposed to the active shevach, which is not part of the lien. And there has to be a separate agreement for the lender to be able to collect it. So this all reinforces Rab Chaim's overall interpretation of the Rambam. Now, the riff on the Gemara in the beginning of Bab Metziah that a lender cannot collect from the Shevach of a gift. So the riff writes, It makes sense that the Shevach of a gift that the lender cannot collect. That's only active Shevach, that the person who got the gift actively improved it. But passive shevach that comes about automatically that the lender could collect. So that's parallel to the view of the Rambam who also limits the whole halacha that the lender cannot collect from the shevach of a gift only to the active shevach not the passive automatic Shabbach. Now, the Ramban, in his commentary on the rift, Melchamos, so he explains that the reason of the rift is that the lender could say to the person who got the gift, you improved my land. So this land was under lien for me, and then you got it as a gift, and you improved it, but that's all my land, so I can collect from the whole thing, including the Shabbach. So based on this, the Ramban says that when the riff says that the lender cannot collect from active Shabbach, he's only referring to the value of how much money the person who got the gift put into the improvements. But it doesn't include the value that the land went up more than how much the value of the improvements was. So let's say, for example, a field was worth 100 and then the borrower gave it as a gift to someone and he added $50. And as a result of the $50 improvements, it went up $100. So now it's worth 200 So the riff holds that obviously the lender could collect from the original 100 Then the next $50 that it went up, which was paid for by the person who got the gift, so that the lender cannot collect from because the person who got the gift who doesn't owe him money paid for that. But then the fact that the land went up another 50, so the lender could collect from that additional 50 because the person who got the gift didn't pay for it. So this distinction of the Ramban disagrees with the Rambam because the Rambam says that the lender cannot collect from any active Shevach, not only the amount that the person paid for the Shevach, but any Shevach that comes as a result of the active Shevach. So according to the Rambam, in that case, the lender could only collect from the first hundred dollars, nothing from the second hundred even though the person who got the gift only paid 50 for those improvements. So there is a debate between the Rambam and the Ramban within this view that someone who gets a gift and improves it, the lender could collect the passive Shevach, not the active Shevach. But does that exclude all the active Shevach or only the value of the active Shevach 
equivalent to how much the person who got the gift paid for it. Now, there is a very fundamental debate between the Rambam and the Ramban. The Rambam, as Rab Chaim already explained, holds that a lien is totally different than ownership. So the lender does not own this land at all. He only has a lien on it. And that's exactly why, according to the Rambam, he has no rights to the active Shevach because since he doesn't own the land, so the person working the land was not working the lender's land. They were working their own land. The lender only has a lien. So that's why only when it comes to a sale, the lender is able to collect because of the sale agreement. But in the case of a gift, the lender has no rights whatsoever to the active Shevach. Again, not only the amount that the person invested in it, but any Shevach that comes about as a result of the person who got the gift's investment, the lender has no rights to it because it's not the lender's land. Now, why in the case of a sale does the lender and the buyer split the Shevach? So as Rab Chaim explained earlier in the Rambam, based on the Gemara and Baba Basra, because since both the lender and the buyer have a claim to this Shevach, so it's the equivalent of a case of someone who borrowed from two lenders and then bought new land. So both lenders would split the land. So the same happens here. The lender and the buyer split the Shevach. So according to the Rambam, this all makes sense. But the Ramban fundamentally disagrees with the Rambam. He holds that a lien is the same as ownership. So the lender does actually own the land on some level, which is why the Ramban holds that the lender does have rights to the active Shevach. He can't take the amount that the person paid for. So the person who got the gift invested $50, the lender can't take his money away from him. But any Shevach that comes about as a result of that investment over and above the $50, so the lender does have a right to it because the Ramban fundamentally disagrees with the Rambam and he holds that a lien is like ownership. So the lender owns the land and now the person worked the lender's land. So the lender has a claim, has a right to any Shevach that comes about as a result of that work. So now Rab Chaim asks on the Ramban's perspective, why do the lender and the buyer split the Shevach? According to the Ramban, the lender should get all of the Shevach because it was his land that the buyer improved. So it's not not like a case of two equivalent lenders that have the same rights. It's more like the case where one lender was earlier and he took control of this land and then a second lender who was later shows up and wants to get in on it as well. So obviously the first lender would get the entire land in that case. So according to the Ramban, that's the parallel in this situation. The lender owned the land, then the buyer purchased it and added and improved to it, but he he was improving the land that belongs to the lender. So why are they splitting? Why does the lender have to compete with the buyer and split the Shevach? He should get all of the Shevach. Now, according to the Rambam, this halacha makes sense. Because since the Rambam holds that the lender does not own the land, he only has a lien. So that means fundamentally he should not collect at all from the active Shevach. The only reason he has any rights to the Shevach is because of the sale agreement. So both the rights of the lender and the buyer in the Shevach come about at the same moment in the sale agreement. Even though the lender loaned the money originally before the buyer bought this property,
property, so the lender was there first, but in terms of the Shevach, both of them only have a right because of the sale agreement, so it happened at the same time. So it's like the case of two equivalent lenders who split the property. So too the buyer and the lender split the property. But according to the Ramban, the lender owns the land, not just the lien. He owns the land, so he has a fundamental right to collect even from the active Shevach. So the lender owned the land before the buyer. So there's no reason that he should compete with the buyer. He should get all of the Shevach. So we have no way to explain, according to the Ramban's perspective, why the buyer and the lender split the Shevach. So Rab Chaim does not answer that question, but he continues with another one. The Rishonim ask that Shmuel in Bab Metziah said that a lender could collect from the Shevach of the buyer because it's written into the sale agreement. Now, in the Gemara in Bab Basra, Shmuel is not sure about that. He's unsure whether the borrower could include in the lien things that he's going to buy. So obviously the borrower can put a lien on stuff that he already owns, but what about land that he's going to buy in the future? Can he include a lien on that? So Shmuel is not sure about that. And the Gemara says that if that doesn't work, so then it follows that the borrower cannot include in the lien the Shevach of the buyer, which is going to come about later. So Shmuel's question includes the issue of whether the borrower can even include the buyer's Shevach in the lien or not. And there is a possibility, according to Shmuel, that the borrower cannot include the buyer's Shevach in the lien. So what's Shmuel saying in the Gemara? in Babetzia, as if he has no questions about this, that the lender can collect the Shevach of the buyer when in fact Shmuel is unsure on that point. So the Ramban answers this question consistent with his overall approach to this halacha. The Ramban says that there's a difference between two types of shevach. Some shevach is built into the land. So it's not a separate structure. It's not something that could be acquired separately. It's just overall improvements to the land itself. Then there's another type of shevach, like a building or a plant, something that could be sold independently of the rest of the field. So that sort of shevach that has its own independent status has a different rule than overall shevach to the field. So the Gemara in Bamatia is talking about the overall shevach to the field, but it's not its own independent structure. So there Shmuel says it's for sure that the lender could collect that type of shevach because it's included in the field and the field belongs to the lender. That's the Ramban's consistent perspective that the field belongs to the lender as part of the lien. So any shevach to the field itself, the lender could collect from. But the Gemara in Baba Basra, which raises the issue, is talking about a building or an independent structure. So that shevach is not included in the field because it could be sold independently. So there Shmuel is unsure whether that's included Included in the lean or not. So that's how the Ramban explains the difference between the Gemar and Baba Basra and the Gemar and Baba Metzia. So the Ramban's solution follows his overall perspective that a lien is like owning the land. So when the buyer is improving the land, it's a Rai Ashbach of the lender. He's improving the land of the lender. So that's why the lender is able to collect any improvements. Now, improvements which are a separate structure and require their own Kenyan, so those are not included 
in the original lien of the lender. So that's why it's unclear whether he can collect them. But anything that doesn't require its own acquisition, its own Kenyan, it's automatically included in the overall field. So that belongs to the lender through his lien. He does not need to acquire it. So even though when the lien first came about, it was not in the world, so he didn't acquire it at that moment, but it all becomes included in the original lien. It doesn't require a separate Kenyan. And even though the buyer is spending money on these improvements, but that has nothing to do with the lender because he's going to get compensated from the borrower, the seller. So the lender is able to collect all of those improvements, even the improvements that cost the buyer money. Now, obviously, the lender can't take the buyer's money because he doesn't owe him any money, but the borrower is going to compensate the buyer. So the lender collects the whole thing. But this all only works according to the Ramban that the lender owns the land. According to the Rambam, the lender has a lien, but he doesn't own the land. And a lien does not include improvements. That's the whole idea Rab Chaim's developing in this piece. So according to the Rambam, this solution is not going to work because why should Shmuel assume that any improvements to the land are automatically included in the lien when they're not? A lien is not ownership of the land. And when the buyer is improving the land, it's not the land of the lender. It's actually the land of the buyer. Now, the lender could collect from the improvements, but because that's written into the sale agreement. So that now all depends on the issue of whether the borrower can include in the lien things which have not been created yet, things which are going to come in the future, and Shmuel is unsure about that. So we're back to the question. If Shmuel is unsure in the Gemara and Baba Basra whether the borrower can include future things in the lien, so why does he say in Bab-Metzia so clearly that the lender could collect from the Shevach of the buyer? So Rab Chaim very brilliantly suggests that the Rambam is going to have a different answer to this question, consistent with his own perspective that a lien is different than ownership. And this is based on the Rambam in the continuation of these halachas in Chaf Aleph Vav, so a few halachas after what we've been discussing. The Rambam says, If the field was set aside by the borrower that the lender is going to collect from this field, So this is stronger than a lien. A lien means that if he doesn't pay him back, then the lender can collect from this field. And apotiki means that this field is set aside for the lender to take. So this is where the payment is supposed to come from. So if that field is now sold to someone else, so the Rambam rules that the lender could collect all of the Shabbat. Here he doesn't get half the Shabbat because since he has a stronger claim to the field, so he gets all of the Shabbat. Now, in terms of what the buyer gets of the Shabbat, so this gets a little more complicated. The Rambam says, The buyer's half of the Shabbat, which he would have gotten, so, If that half of the Shabbat is worth more than how much he spent, so let's say he invested $50 and the field went up by 200. So his half of the shevach is 100, but he only spent 50 out of his own pockets for this shevach. So his half of the shevach is worth more than his expenditures. So the Rambam says, He goes to the lender and collects the $50. So the 50 that he spent on this field, the lender owes him because the buyer should not be giving 
giving money to the lender, he doesn't owe him any money. So the lender has to reimburse him for the $50. Because the lender says to the buyer, you improved my field. I had an apotiki. So this was my field that you improved. So I'm going to reimburse your expenditures, but the additional value I don't owe you because that's the halacha. If someone improves another person's field, they own all the improvements and they only reimburse the expenditures. So the remaining 50 that this buyer deserves, he goes to the seller, to the borrower, and he gets that 50 of the shevach. So that's how it works if the expenditures are less than the shevach. Now, if the expenditures were more than the shevach, so then the lender gives him the smaller amount, so he does not have to give him the expenditures, he pays him half of the shevach. So let's say the buyer invested $100 and the field only went up by 50. So he only gets 25. So the lender does not give him 100, which is his expenditures, he only gives him the 25. And then he can collect from the borrower, the seller, the other 25. So he loses out on the 50, but he does get back the shevach, half from the lender and half from the borrower. So that's how the Rambam presents that halacha. So there's some question how to interpret this Rambam, but Rab Chaim suggests that the Rambam is making a distinction between a regular lien versus this more strong apotiki where the borrower designates this field for the repayment of the loan. So there the lender actually does own the field. So even though the Rambam disagrees with the Ramban and he holds that a lien is not ownership, but an apotiki is stronger, so it is ownership. So in that case, the lender does own the field before the buyer purchases it. So that's why the lender owns more of the shevach than in a regular lien. So just like the Ramban said in a regular lien, the lender owns all of the shevach over and above the expenditures of the person who got the gift. So the Rambam applies that same concept to the case of Apotiki, that the lender owns all of the shevach over and above the expenditures of the buyer. Now, the expenditures of the buyer, he has to be reimbursed because the buyer should not be paying the lender anything. So he does get that money back, but anything over and above that automatically belongs to the lender because he really owns this property. So this case of Apotiki is the parallel for the Rambam of how the Ramban sees other loans and the lender owns all of the Shevach. Just the buyer needs to be reimbursed for what he spent. So in terms of the amount that he spent, there the buyer and the lender have equivalent rights. So there they would split the shevach. But it's only in terms of that value of how much he spent. Anything over and above that belongs to the lender. Now, there is one distinction because the Ramban holds that the lender cannot collect from the value that the person who got the gift spent at all. Whereas the Rambam says that they split it. 
So why does the Rambam hold that the lender has any right to the money that the buyer himself spent? Why does that not fully belong to the buyer? So Rab Chaim explains that this detail is because the Rambam holds that even in the case of Apotiki, the borrower writes into the agreement of sale that the lender can collect from the Shevach. So there is an agreement that the buyer's Shevach, which refers primarily to what he himself spent, can be included in in the lender's collection. Now, anything over and above the value of what he spent is automatically included in the lender's collection because he owns the land, as Rab Chaim just said. So the sale agreement primarily includes whatever the buyer invests in this land, the value of those improvements are included in the lender's collection, and there they split it because they both have equal rights. So that explains the details of how the Rambam rules in this case. Now, what Rab Chaim wants from this analysis is that according to his reading of the Rambam, we now have a case of Apotiki where the Rambam interprets it like the Ramban, that the lender owns the land, and even so there is an agreement in the sale that the buyer's shevach can be collected by the lender. So anything equivalent to how much the buyer spends on the improvements is included in the sale agreement, and any shevach over and above that is automatically the lenders because he owns the land. So now we can answer the contradiction between Shmuel and Bab Metziah and Bab Basra. According to the Rambam, the case in Bab Metziah is talking about Apotiki land. So there Shmuel certainly holds that the lender could collect the buyer's Shevach because it really belongs to the lender. So that's why Shmuel is certain that the lender could collect the buyer's Shevach, but there does still need to be a sale agreement to that effect to include the value that the buyer invests in the land. So that's how the Rambam reads the case in Bab Metziah that it's talking about an Apotiki case, as opposed to Bab Basra, which is talking about a regular lien. And there, in fact, Shmuel is unclear whether the borrower could include the buyer's Shevach in the lien. So that's how the Rambam is going to resolve this contradiction consistent with his own view that in a regular lien, the lender does not own the property. But even the Rambam agrees that there is one exceptional case which functions like the Ramban's lien that the lender does own the property and that is Apotiki. So that's the difference. The Gemara in Bab Metziah is talking about Apotiki. In Baba Basra, it's talking about a regular lien where the lender does not own the land. Now, the Ravid in Halacha Vav disputes the Rambam's view about the case of Apotiki. So the Rambam again held that in the case of Apotiki, so the Shevach of the buyer has different levels. So let's say he spent 50 and it improved it by 100. So according to the Rambam, the first 50, the buyer and the lender divide. Each one of them gets half. And the second 50 belongs fully to the lender. So the Ravid disputes this and he says, Mahu why is it that if half of the Shevach belongs to the buyer, so even the amount that he spent, he only gets half of his expenditures. So the Ravid doesn't like what the Rambam is saying, that the buyer gets half of the value of his expenditures. So instead, according to the Ravid, if 
if the lender takes all of the shevach, so he has to split the whole thing with the buyer. So let's say in this case where the buyer spent 50 and it went up by 100, according to the Rambam, the lender gets 75 and the buyer gets 25. According to the Raivid, they split the whole thing evenly and they each get 50. And from his half of the shevach, the lender also has to pay for the buyer's expenditures. So the Raivid disagrees with the Rambam that over and above the expenditures belongs fully to the lender and the expenditures are split in half. According to the Raivid, the whole thing is split in half. So Rab Chaim points out that the Raivid is actually arguing with the Rambam on two points. First, according to the Rambam, in the case of Apotiki, the Shevach over and above the expenditures belongs fully to the lender. And according to the Raivid, the lender and the buyer split that Shevach as well. And second, according to the Rambam, the lender does not have to pay the buyer for his expenditures from his portion of the Shevach. And according to the Raivid, he does. So according to the Raivid, the lender cannot take money from the buyer that he spent on the Shevach. He has to fully reimburse him. So he reimburses him for his half of the Shevach. And then overall, they split the entire Shevach in half. So that's how the Raivid understands this halacha. So says Rab Chaim, using his framework for explaining this whole issue, so we can see how the two views of the Raivid, both points that he disagrees with the Rambam on, are related. Because since the Raivid holds in the case of Apotiki, that the lender has to reimburse the buyer for his expenditures, so obviously the case of Shmuel and Bab Metziah is not a case of Apotiki. Because in the Gemara, Shmuel said, that the seller, meaning the borrower, agrees to reimburse the buyer for his expenditures, but the lender does not need to reimburse the buyer. So obviously the case of Shmuel is talking about a regular loan. There, the borrower agrees to reimburse the buyer, not the lender. And the case of Apotiki is different and the borrower, the seller, does not agree to reimburse the buyer. So the lender has to reimburse him. So according to the Raivid, Shmuel's case in the beginning of Bab-Metziah cannot be the case of Apotiki. It must be referring to a regular loan. So now, if that's the case, then we're back to the contradiction within Shmuel. Why does he say in Bab-Metziah that the lender can collect the buyer's shevach when he's not sure about it in Bab-Basra? Now again, the Rambam answered that Bab-Basra is a regular loan and Bab-Metziah is Apotiki. But the Raivid can't answer that because he learns that Bab-Metziah is talking about a regular loan. So he must answer it like the Ramban's approach, that there's a difference between a separate improvement, like a building or a tree, which can be sold on its own. So in order to be included in the lien, it requires a Kenyan versus general improvements to the land, which do not require a Kenyan. So according to the Ramban, and now we see that that's the Raivid's approach, the Gemara in Bab Metziah is talking about overall improvements. The Gemara in Bab Basra is talking about a specific building or tree. So now, if the Raivid is in the Ramban's camp, that means that he holds the lender with a lien is like he owns the land. 
percent. So that means there is no real difference between a regular loan versus an apotiki. The whole basis of the Rambam is that there's a difference between a regular loan, where the lender only has a lien, but he doesn't own the land, versus apotiki, where the lender owns the land. But according to the Ramban and the Raivid, both those cases are the same. In both of them, the lender is like he owns the land. So that's why the Raivid by apotiki disagrees with the second point of the Rambam. The Rambam holds that any shevach over and above the expenditures automatically belongs fully to the lender because since it's an apotiki, he owns the land. But the Raivid counters that since he learns like the Ramban, that's the case even in a regular loan that the lender owns the land. And still we treat it as if there are two lenders. We consider the lender and the buyer to have equal rights and they have to split the shevach. So there's no reason to differentiate between what happens in a regular loan and an apotiki because we see from a regular loan that even when the lender owns the land because of the lien, still he has to split the shevach with the buyer. Now, Rab Chaim in the previous paragraph wondered why that should be. So he did ask why, according to the Ramban, the lender doesn't get the entire shevach. But whatever the answer to that question is, he's not dealing with that now. We do see, though, from that case, however to explain it, that even though the lender owns the land, he still has to, for some reason, split it with the buyer. So the same should apply in the case of apotiki because there's no reason to differentiate between them. So even when it comes to apotiki, the lender and the buyer should split the shevach. So that's exactly why the Ravid disagrees with the Rambam on that point, And he says all of the shevach gets split. So the two points of the Ravid are connected because once he learned that in the case of apotiki, the lender has to reimburse the buyer's expenditures. So then the Rambam's distinction between apotiki and a regular loan which answers the Gemara in Bab Metziah and Bab Basra fell apart. So then he had to go down the route of the Ramban. So now there is no distinction between a regular loan and an apotiki. In both of them, the lender owns the land. So from a regular loan, we can extrapolate to the case of apotiki that still the buyer and the lender split the shevach, all of the shevach, even the shevach over and above the expenditure cost. So that's why the Raivid disagrees with both points on the Rambam. So this is Rab Chaim's piece. Again, it's a very difficult, complicated piece on a somewhat convoluted case. But in the midst of this discussion, Rab Chaim explains some very key important points. Now, the key conceptual points that Rab Chaim touches on are, first of all, the issue of what's included in the land. So that's the first major issue are the improvements that happen to the land included in the land itself. So the basic approach of the Rambam that Rab Chaim develops, and this comes up in the laws of borrowing and liens, as well as in the laws of returning land at Yovel, as well as in the laws of what the sharecropper owns. So in all of them, there is a consistent theme of the Rambam that the Shevach de Memela, the automatic passive Shevach, is included in the land itself, whereas the active Shevach, that the buyer improves the land at his own cost, so that belongs 
belongs to the buyer. And the way Rab Chaim formulates this, if the land itself improves, so that's part of the land automatically. But if someone improves the land, so then it's going to depend on whether there's an owner of the land or not. If there's an owner, so then the improvements belong to that person. But if it's a more questionable case, so there's not a real clear owner of this land and the person who improves it also has rights to the land, so then they own the improvements that they paid for. So that's a very key point. And according to Rab Chaim, the Ravid and the Magid Mishnah are quoting that there are others who disagree with this. And they consider even the automatic shevach of the land to belong to the buyer, to whoever owned it at the time, not to be a part of the land itself. So that's a very interesting debate between the Rambam and others. Now, the second major issue Rab Chaim touches on is what is the nature of a lien? How much ownership is it? And according to Rab Chaim, this is a consistent debate between the Rambam and the Ramban. The Ramban holds that a lien is a form of ownership. So it's as if the lender owns the land on some level and any improvements to the land are done in the lender's ownership. The Rambam, though, disagrees. He holds that a lien is a right to collect from this land, but it's not actual ownership of the land. Now, there is an interesting formulation from Rab Chaim. He believes that a lien is not against the borrower. It's on the land. So it's on the property and not on the person. So according to the Rambam, putting this all together, the lender has a lien on whatever's included in this property, even if it's not owned by the borrower, but it doesn't extend to anything that happens to the land if it's not part of the field itself. So now that ties in with the first issue, whether the improvements are part of the field or they're an addition to the field. So now those two issues connect because if the shevach is part of the field, then it's included in the lien. Otherwise, it's not. So this is the basic framework of the Rambam. But this second point is also a very key point, whether a lien is a form of ownership or not. But even if it's not, the lien is still on the property and not against the person. So those are the major conceptual points that Rab Chaim touches on throughout this piece. Now, there's one point that's worth discussing a little more. Rab Chaim has a very specific reading of the Ramban, but there are other commentators who read him differently, and the Ramban's comments are very central in this halacha. So it's worth just understanding some of the discussion. The key point that the Ramban makes is that even if the borrower gives the land as a gift to someone, and that person who got the gift improves the value, still the lender is able to collect from that shevach over and above the cost of the improvements. So if the person who got the land as a gift invested 50 and the land went up by 100, the lender could collect that extra 50 over and above the 50 that he spent. So this is a very original idea. The Rif and the Rambam just limit it that the lender can collect the passive shevach, but not the active shevach. Whereas the Ramban adds that there is even a form of active shevach that the lender could collect from the person who got the gift. So the issue is how to understand this approach of the Ramban. So the way Rab Chaim explains it, it's because the Ramban holds that the lender owns the land. So the lien is a form of ownership. So any shevach really belongs to the lender, but he can't take the money that the person who got the gift actually spent. So that's why he only gets the shevach over and above the cost of the expenditures. So that's Rab Chaim's reading of the Ramban. And then based on that, he builds on that 
had a whole debate between the Rambam and the Ramban, and he explains it at some length. Now, there are other ways to explain the approach of the Ramban. So the Tzos in Simen Kuf Tes Vav Sifkat and Tes, so he explains that the Ramban holds that even active Shevach is included in the land. In other words, it's not that the lender owns the land, it's the other way. Even the active Shevach is a part and parcel of the land. Rab Chaim assumes in this piece, as is the approach of the Rambam, that only passive Shevach is part of the land. Active Shevach belongs to the person who did it. Whereas according to the Tzos, the Ramban disagrees on that point, and he maintains that even active Shevach becomes part of the land. So that's why the lender has a right to it, even though the person who got the gift created that added value. Now, the Nesivis, in his discussion in Sifkat and Tess, so he questions this approach of the Tzos, not because he reads the Ramban like Rab Chaim, but from a different perspective. But either way, the Tzos in the Meshovev, so the Tzos and the Nesivis always go back and forth. The Tzos was published first, and then the Nesivis questioned some of his conclusions, and then the Tzos responded in the Meshovev, and then the Nesivis responded. So there's a very nice literature back and forth between them. So this is one of the unclear instances because the Nesivis first printed his work, and then the Tzos responded, and then the Nesivis reprinted his Sefer, and he changed some of the formulations. So sometimes the Tzos is responding to an earlier version of the Nesivis, which is not in the later printings. It was changed. So this is one of those examples. But either way, the Tzos in the Meshovev doubles down on his reading of the Ramban, and he repeats how he interprets the Ramban's view. So that's a second way to understand the Ramban, not that the lender owns the property, but that even active Shevach is part of the land. So that's the debate between Rab Chaim and the Tzos. Now, the Nachlas David, Rab David Tevel, who was a Talmud of Rab Chaim's great-great-grandfather, Rab Chaim Balozhenar. So in his commentary on Bamitzia Tesvav Amir Aleph, he also discusses this Ramban at length. And he asks a question which is very similar to Rab Chaim's on the Ramban, which is, if according to the Ramban, the lender could collect even the Shevach from someone who got it as a gift. So why does the Ramban hold that when the buyer improves it, the lender only gets half? So this is very similar to the question Rab Chaim asked, that according to the Ramban, the lender should get all of the Shevach. So the Nachlas David is asking a similar question, that since the Ramban holds that the lender could even collect from someone who got it as a gift, so that means the Shevach inherently belongs to the lender. So why does he only get half and the buyer also gets half? So the Nachlas David has a third approach to interpreting this Ramban. And I'm not going to focus on how he fits this in to interpreting the Gemara, which is what he's discussing, but I'm just going to try to articulate the basic conceptual reading of the Ramban, which is, according to the Nachlas David, the Ramban holds that when the borrower sells the land, even though it's going to someone else's ownership, but any improvements are going to be traced back to the seller who's the borrower. So this is a new suggestion for how to understand this approach. According to Rab Chaim, the key factor was the lender. His lien is powerful enough 
according to the Ramban, that he collects any Shabbach. According to the Ktsos, the key factor is the Shabbach itself, that any Shabbach is considered part of the land. According to the Nachlas David, there's a third key factor, which is the borrower. He's in the middle of the whole equation. So since the borrower sold the land during the time of the loan, so he's including in the lien any future improvements. So anyone who improves the land, whether it was a gift or they bought it, either way, it traces back to the borrower and now it's included in the lien. So that's a way to balance these two views of the Ramban. That's why he holds that even the active shevach of someone who got it as a gift is included in the lien because it goes back to the borrower. But that also explains why the buyer and the lender split the shevach because since they both have a claim against the borrower, the buyer bought it from him and the lender loaned him money. So they both have a claim against the borrower in the middle, so therefore they split the Shabbach. So this is an attempt to explain the irony of how it could be that if someone got it as a gift, they have to hand over all of the Shabbach to the lender, whereas if they bought it, they get to keep half of the Shabbach. We would have assumed, and the Gemara says, that a gift is better in this regard than buying it. There's less of an obligation to give the Shabbach to the lender for a gift. So how can the Ramban say that the buyer has to split it with the lender, whereas whoever got it as a gift has to give him all the Shabbach. So the Nachlas David attempts to explain how that could be. But again, this is only going to answer the Nachlas David's formulation of the question, not the way Rab Chaim formulated the question.